Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode 11 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. Today, we're going to continue discussing mortgage investments. But before we do so, let's get to a question from one of our listeners. Remember, if you want to submit a question, you can do so at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. Today's question is from Tobias, who wants to know whether the average person is even able to invest in mortgages, or if it's a type of asset that one aspires to eventually afford. So, Tobias, this is a good question. I know a lot of others wonder the same thing because they're used to discussing mortgages in the context of banks. They assume that they need hundreds of thousands of dollars to even do a single deal. Tobias, it depends on where you live. In the US and Canada, there is an almost endless supply of mortgage investments. Some are direct investments, where you're funding a mortgage by yourself or through a syndication. We'll talk about what that means later on. You can also get involved in the mortgage space through funds like ETFs, MIX, MREITs, credit funds, and other structured products. Some deals are more widely available than others, but once you start looking, you'll see that there is no shortage of investment opportunities. I've noticed that it's less about not having enough options and more that people don't even know that they exist. We're going to tackle that problem as we continue through these episodes. So, last week we started off with the very basics. We established that a mortgage itself is not a loan. Instead, it's a legal instrument that is used to secure a debt with real estate. When a property is sold, the proceeds must first be used to repay any debts that are attached to it. The debts are paid in chronological order. First mortgages are paid first, second mortgages are paid second, third mortgages are paid third, and so on. However, tax liens that are registered by the government can often skip the line and get right into the first position. We also talked about a concept called loan-to-value, or LTV. This is a ratio that expresses how much of the property's worth is consumed by debt. If there's a house worth $100,000 and it's got a $50,000 mortgage, then its LTV would be 50%. The property could be sold, and the seller would retain 50% of the proceeds. Today, we're going to continue to lay the groundwork for all sorts of mortgage investments, whether they're direct mortgages, syndicated mortgages, mix, ETFs, or mortgage funds, etc. We're going to look at how mortgages can be investments. After all, most people are used to them from the standpoint of being a borrower but we're going to explore them from the other side of the deal. But before we do that, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Pacific Income, a firm that, surprise, surprise, I'm also the CEO of. We provide financing to entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and small business owners who need capital to grow. We specialize in firms in the U.S. and Canada that are looking for under $250,000. If you've got a good deal, 
we want to be part of your growth story. Please check us out at packincome.com. That's PACincome.com. Okay, so let's begin. How does a mortgage become an investment? For the rest of this episode, try to imagine that you're an executive at a bank or a mortgage fund or even a private lender. We're going to address this question at the ground level. We're first going to look at the mechanics of a mortgage loan, and then we'll get into how it can make money for investors. In its most basic form, there are two parties to a mortgage loan. There's the person or business that wants to borrow money, called a borrower, and there's the person or business that wants to lend money, called the lender or the investor. The borrower and the lender agree to the terms of the loan, like how much is being loaned, also known as the principal, what the interest rate is, usually expressed as an annual percentage, and when the loan must be repaid, known as the maturity date. For example, it may be a $20,000 loan with an interest rate of 10% per year that matures in 18 months. The agreement is formalized by a contract, usually a promissory note or a loan agreement. They're similar, although a promissory note only needs to be signed by the borrower. Loan agreements have to be executed by both parties. Most agreements will have additional details, like how often interest payments have to be made, for example, monthly or quarterly, whether there are any fees, whether there's any collateral for the loan. In this case, the contract would probably state that there would be a mortgage. How and where disputes will be handled. And what actions might construe a default event. A default event is an action that would violate the terms of the agreement. For example, many lenders consider filing for bankruptcy to be one. As such, if the borrower ever files for bankruptcy, the lender could demand immediate repayment of the loan, even if it's before the maturity date. Another common provision in loan agreements is a trigger for interest rate increases. For instance, banks often lend at prime plus a certain amount of interest, rather than at a fixed rate. That allows the rate to float alongside market changes thus protecting the bank's profit margin. I've seen loan agreements from as short as half a page to as long as 20 pages. Personally, I don't like to go beyond two pages unless it's necessary. I prefer contracts to be simple, clear, and to the point. As well, the contract will often require the borrower to reimburse the lender for any expenses that it incurs in connection with the loan. For instance, if they get into a dispute and enter litigation, the borrower would have to repay the lender for its legal fees. Depending on the jurisdiction, there will usually be additional documents involved when granting a mortgage. The promissory note or loan agreement shows that a loan has been made, but it doesn't solidify the mortgage. For example, the borrower may have to sign a government-prescribed document alongside a lawyer or notary public, who then files that form with the government. Only after the government has confirmed receipt 
is the mortgage considered to be registered? So to be clear, mortgage loans will usually require two types of documents. First, a contract that evidences the debt, like a promissory note or a loan agreement. Second, the documents that govern and register the mortgage on real estate. Now, talking about legal documents may seem dry, but they are crucial to the investment. To state the obvious, they define the terms of the arrangement. They help avoid discrepancies and misunderstandings and are used in court in the event of a dispute between the borrower and the lender. However, these documents also form the basis of other mortgage investments, like investment funds and mortgage-backed securities. We'll talk about all that in later episodes. For now, let's just focus on how the lender makes money from this transaction. The lender usually makes money in two ways. The first is from interest payments. Since they are usually paid monthly, mortgage loans can make for enticing passive income investments. If all goes according to plan, you lend your money, sit back, and collect the interest every 30 days. In most cases, the lender, whether it's a bank, mortgage fund, or even an individual, will charge an interest rate that reflects the risk it's taking. If it believes there's little risk of default, then it would presumably drop its rate. Or, perhaps there's enough collateral to protect its capital, even if the worst was to occur. The lender will also consider how lucrative the deal is when compared to other investment opportunities. For example, let's imagine that you've got $20,000 to invest. You're looking at two opportunities. On the one hand, there's a mortgage loan with virtually no risk. Say the LTV is at 10% and there's plenty of third-party security. But the interest rate available is only 2% a year. On the other hand, there's a REIT that yields 9% a year with plenty of room for capital growth. You're confident that you'd do well with it, but it's still not as safe as the mortgage loan. What would you do? If it was me, I'd first try to negotiate a higher rate on the mortgage loan. If I couldn't, I'd probably then go for the REIT. Even though there's more risk, earning 2% is not worth it for me. This is the same analysis that banks use when giving mortgage loans and lines of credit. First, they have a minimum interest rate that's determined by management. Then, after running a credit check and assessing your financial situation, they will give you a loan that reflects how risky they think you are. The greater the chance they think you'll default, the higher your rate will be. Lenders can charge as much interest as legally allowed. The amount varies per jurisdiction. There is such thing as charging a criminally high amount of interest, often called the usury rate. So, what do most lenders charge for their money? It's a tough question to answer because there are so many types of deals. But in today's market, a first mortgage on a residential home should be around 2 to 
that's a difficult business to get into because it's dominated by banks. But once you get into second mortgages, the rates can cross well into the double digits. The same applies to many commercial loans. People are often surprised to hear about rates much higher than 3%, but that's probably because they're used to dealing with regular residential mortgages. Real estate is a very, very big world. Not only do different borrowers have different risk profiles, but not all properties get the same interest rates. The next way that lenders make money is by charging fees. For example, there will often be a penalty if the borrower is late with an interest payment. Late fees can be used as a tool to help ensure that the investment is passive. It can also compensate the lender for its risk whenever a payment is late. As well, lenders will usually charge penalties if a transaction fails. If you look at your credit card agreement, for instance, you might see that a fee will be charged if you make a payment by check and that check bounces. Not only would you be charged a late fee, but you'd also incur a declined check fee. There's also something called an origination fee, which is charged up front. These are common for short-term loans, like mezzanine and bridge financing. We'll discuss those terms later on. For example, the lender might finance a real estate deal for one year at 8% interest. But it could also charge a 2% origination fee. As such, the effective rate of the loan is 10%. Origination fees are popular because they allow the lender to profit immediately, rather than waiting for the borrower to make interest payments each month. Banks and long-term lenders don't usually charge origination fees. Their model is to make money from interest payments over the course of decades. For example, they'll give 25-year mortgages or revolving lines of credit but origination fees are an important profit center for shorter-term deals, which have less time to earn interest. Lenders will usually deduct origination fees from the funds advanced to the borrower. They might also withhold reimbursements. Let's say you're going to finance a small-scale property development. An entrepreneur might need $30,000 to do renovations, with the aim of selling the property in one year. You agree to lend the $30,000 at 11% interest, with a 1% origination fee and a one-year maturity date. The loan will be secured by a second mortgage over the real estate. You then hire a lawyer to draft the documents and to register the mortgage, which costs you $1,000. As such, while the promissory note will show a $30,000 debt, you would only give the borrower $28,700. You deducted $1,000 for your legal bill and $300, 1%, for your origination fee. But in a year, the borrower will have to repay $30,000. In the meantime, he's also paying interest on the entire $30,000, not $28,700. Many lenders will also deduct six months or a year's worth of interest payments to be held in reserve. If the entrepreneur needed $30,000, 
it might make more sense to issue a promissory note for something like $31,500. That way, the fees and reimbursements don't eat into the capital she needs. Done correctly, mortgage loans can be outstanding investments. First, they can produce passive income in the form of monthly interest payments. Second, they can have several profit centers through fees and penalties. Third, they're backed by real estate. Fourth, the cost of issuing the loan are borne by the borrower. That's why banks and investment funds love them. But, as you know, there's no such thing as a perfect investment. Next Wednesday, we're going to look at some of the risks of mortgage loans. We'll then tie that in to the Great Recession of 2008. After that, we'll dive into the various types of borrowers. We'll look at people who are desperate to borrow money to pay off their credit cards, to healthy businesses that need short-term private financing, to real estate entrepreneurs that work with lenders on their deals. This is a massive industry, so it can't be painted with a broad brush. It's also important to know these details if you want to consider the ethical implications of mortgage investing. For instance, I prefer to finance companies that are growing so I can help them hire employees or develop new products. In return, I can also earn a profit. It's a win win scenario. Some others, however, just want to make a buck and don't care how it's done. And worse, there are lenders who intentionally target the vulnerable. As we continue our journey through mortgage loans, we'll cover how they are engineered into indirect investments. We'll look at how they can be bought, sold, and bundled, and how investors can buy into funds in order to participate in them. So that about wraps it up for today. Until next week, please remember to like or subscribe to this podcast so that I can get the word out there. Thanks again for your support, and I'll talk to you soon.